I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, one theme. And the theme is, what is it like when you become the new voice of a professional sports team? Have two excellent play-by-play announcers. First up, Michael Grady. He was announced this month as the new voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves on Bally Sports North. He has spent the last six years with the Yes Network in New York as a a multi-versatile player on the Nets broadcast. A lot of people believe the Nets broadcast best in the NBA, and they are certainly on the short list uh, for that with Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustak. Obviously, Michael Grady was there. And he begins his journey as the Minnesota Timberwolves play-by-play voice. We had a really, really interesting conversation just about uh, how the job came about and um, how you approach uh, interviewing with owners uh, what it's like to replace someone who's very popular in the market. So great conversation with him. He's followed by Anish Shroff, who last March was named radio play-by-play announcer for the Carolina Panthers NFL team. If you are a uh, college sports fan, you probably have seen Anish on ESPN. He's a uh, game caller for college football, college basketball, college baseball, uh, lead voice for men's college lacrosse. And again, similar theme here about how Anish got the Panthers job. What is it like interviewing with all sorts of people and how do you uh, approach that? Um, How do you prepare to call a team that you haven't called before? Although in Anish's case, he lives in Charlotte. So that was a big help. So again, particularly if you're into play-by-play, this is a a podcast I think you will uh, really like. Michael Grady and Anish Sharaf. Again, before we get uh, to our conversation with Michael Grady, Thank you for all the great uh, comments that have been coming in in terms of uh, reviews on Apple and and elsewhere. Uh, Again, can't thank you enough, and please keep it up. If you like this podcast, uh, I know I say it every week, and I'm going to continue to say it. It really, really helps. So um, five-star reviews and a nice note. um, Yeah, they they are getting noticed, so so much obliged when it comes to that. All right, Michael Grady and Anish Sharaf coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Michael Grady was announced this month as the new voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves on Bally Sports North. If you are uh, either a Nets fan or based in the New York area, you're aware, uh, you're well aware of his work on the Yes Network. He spent six years there as uh, sort of a, a versatile multiplayer for the Nets. He was a sideline reporter, pregame and postgame host, occasional play-by-play person. He also called games for the WNBA's New York Liberty. And again, as I said at the top, um, I wanted to do a podcast on people who are walking into a big new play-by-play job. And that's what Michael Grady is doing when it comes to the Timberwolves. And I'm pleased to be joined by Michael Grady. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you so much, Richard. Good to be on with you, man. All right. So um, let's start here. You know, go as specific as you can, but sort of my little intro here, Mike, is that... um, 
Oh, I should call you Grady or Michael. I've already screwed up and calling you Mike. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do better as we head forward. Yeah. I won't. By the way, I'm not. I'm not cutting that. In in, in, uh, in Patrick's not cutting that net. In. I like my screw ups. Yeah, I like my screw ups to be uh, front and center. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the way these jobs uh, happen, Michael, as you know, is they get open, and either your representatives or you, as the talent, if you happen to know someone in an organization, you know, you let it be known that like you'd be interested in this. For an NBA play-by-play job, this is really, really highly competitive. There's going to be a lot of people who will go after this job, including people from that city. So as specific as you can, how did the job come about? How did you land this job with the Timberwolves? Uh, you know, there were, there were rumblings um, that there was there was interest. And, you know, when you're in the NBA circle, you hear about things. You know, my agent is certainly hearing about things. Um, but for a long stretch, I was I was just locked in on Brooklyn. Uh, the way the community had embraced me, I, I had long felt a connection to New York, even though uh, I grew up in Indianapolis. And I just love the community, and I love the fan base, and I love the people that I worked with. So even though an NBA play-by-play job was the ultimate, you know, goal for me, um, change is something that I had to strongly uh, consider. And in Minneapolis. And not knowing a whole lot about Minneapolis, um, even though I grew up in the Midwest, you know, when traveling with the Nets, you know, we fly in the night before the game, you know, maybe get a drink at the at, at the hotel, go to sleep, wake up, shoot around, do the game, and then we're flying out. So I hadn't really had an opportunity to get out in the area, meet people, you know, visit some great restaurants and things like that. So I didn't know a lot about Minneapolis. So it was hard to wrap my mind around that when I was gaining so much familiarity and comfort um, in New York. So it took a, it took a lot of um, uh, uh, contemplation. But once the, once the conversations happened and being able to talk to the people and their vision there and uh, the leadership there with the Timberwolves, and, you know, a conversation with Alex Rodriguez and Mark Laurie and then uh, Glenn Taylor and, and, and his wife, Becky. It, it really it really became a no brainer in my mind. There are life things that uh, things in life that that um, enter the equation. You know, I have a stepson in his senior year of high school. I had to take that into consideration, you know, uprooting my family and all that. But um, one thing that my wife kept reminding me is that this is um, this is my dream and we'll make it work. And it's one of 30. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor to be considered. And it's a true blessing to be able to uh, land one of these jobs, considering, um, considering it's been a lifelong dream. All right. So a couple of things there. And I think uh, my listeners will find this interesting. I think you might have mentioned all the primary or principal owners of the Timberwolves. And I'm not sure that the, um, those who are listening would realize that the play-by-play broadcaster is of great interest to to ownership, and they take an active role in doing interviewing and and being part of that process. So, for you, um, was that new? And um, and how do you approach that when it's not necessarily like you're only being interviewed by like you know the head of broadcasting, but in this case, you're literally being interviewed by the people who have invested the millions and sometimes billions in the team. Yeah, you know, Richard, the, the, I think one thing that, that fans notice when they're in these communities and really, um, you know, Vince Scully's passing um, really brings this to the forefront. And I, I loved your conversation with Joe Buck recently on Vin. 
you know, these, these play-by-play announcers, they really create, whether it's television or radio, the soundtrack um, to the game-to-game experience. The highs, the lows, um, the unbelievable comebacks, the game winners, the heartbreaks. Um, these play-by-play announcers um, play a big role in telling the story of a team's journey um, over the course of years. And there's a strong connection and bond that's established between a play-by-play announcer and the fan base. And it's a special one. And so it's not just a, a Bally Sports North job. Um, it's not just a, going back to New York, a, a, a Yes Network gig. Uh, Iron Eagle means something. To the people, to the people of, of Brooklyn, of course, people in New Jersey, you know, with, with the New Jersey Nets at that at, at a particular time, um, Mike Breen with the Knicks, you know, color commentators as well. Uh, these people are all a part of the branding of a franchise, and so um, it wasn't that surprising to me. I, I know I felt great appreciation even as a sideline reporter and doing play by play when I could for the Nets so with Joe and Clarissa and how much they appreciated. Um, you know, my passion, um, Sarah's passion, Ryan Rucco's passion, Ian Eagle's passion, up through the production team uh, and everyone involved, Richard Jefferson as well. Um, they appreciate the way that we help push the team. And it's not it's not necessarily homerism, but you're you represent the franchise. And so to me, that wasn't a surprise that that Glenn was involved and that A-Rod was involved and, and Mark Laurie and, and others because they understand the significance and what it means to not only represent the franchise, but also what's important to me representing uh, the community. You know, almost uh, everyone on the Nets broadcast at some point has been on this podcast. Nine Eagle many times. Uh, well, it, t- it, took me leaving. it took me leaving. Yeah, it took me leaving. I'll, right. I'll, Sarah- I'll take it anyway. I'll take it anyway. I can't. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah Kustak a number of times. Ryan Rucco. Yeah. Uh, as I've always told Ian that uh, um, Sarah Kustak, uh, her chiropractor must be getting a lot of work for carrying Ian Eagle for the last 10 years. Um, but, but here's the reality of this. This is, this is uh, you know, this is a national broadcast. Like, I'm not just saying that as a New Yorker who's watched um, Nets and Knicks broadcast for a long time. Like the Nets broadcast league wide is considered um, the best, or if not one of the best broadcasts in uh, in the league. I wonder, from your perspective, Michael, as much as you enjoyed working on the Nets, you do have Ian Eagle in front of you. You have Ryan Rucco in front of you. Both those guys are network broadcasters, and in Ian Eagle's case, you know, number two CBS NFL, essentially number one at Turner. The reality is, like, as long as he wants, most likely, like, he has that job. That's not going to change. So for you, when you're sort of calculating this, if your dream was to be an NBA play-by-play person, did you kind of always know that you would ultimately maybe have to leave the Nets just given who is already on that uh, broadcast team? You know, that's something that obviously, you know, enters your mind. And so what you try to do, and I think what's important for – young people, regardless of the field that you're getting into, is absorb as much as you can and enjoy as much as you can. Um, I, 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 I would imagine some people were surprised to see me doing play-by-play because of how much joy they saw me having and doing the sideline reporting. And I just, I just love being, you know, being a part of a sports broadcast and being a part of the, story, the storytelling process. And so I knew I wanted to be play-by-play. 
but I enjoyed every single minute of what I was able to do at Yes Network, whether it was studio stuff, sideline reporting, the, the, the play-by-play I was able to get in, working with great people. I genuinely enjoyed um, every minute of it. But absolutely, when you think, you know, long-term and you understand that, you know, Ian's a legend and one of the best to ever do it uh, in sports play-by-play. Ryan Rucco is, is, has long been established as one of the best still young play-by-play announcers in this game. Um, it definitely crosses your mind that you're going to have to, you know, you may have to consider an opportunity outside of Brooklyn, as much as I may love it, to be able to fulfill this, this lifelong dream of doing play-by-play. And that's not a thing you feel, you know, sad about. You know, I, I love the fans in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn will always be a, a home for me uh, and my family. Um, it's not something to feel sad about. It's something that I really appreciate to have been able to have gone on that ride to see, you know, a young Nets team that won 21 games prior to my arrival, um, work their way into uh, a postseason in, in my second season, watching D'Angelo Russell and Karis LeBert, Jared Allen and others. And then the, 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 you know, the, the earth shattering move of Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant deciding to come to Brooklyn and then all the, the roller coaster ride uh, of their of their experience in Brooklyn to this point and, and, and continuing on still with aspirations of winning a championship. Man, I loved every minute of it. And I loved being able to watch Iron Eagle work, um, watching Ryan work, watch the entire staff work. Sarah is as great as she is, uh, an even better human being. Um, Frank DeGrace, our amazing producer. Uh, it was it was an education for me. So it was uh, it was it was going it was five years. So um, well, I was a grad student, you know, pretty much, you know, <laughs> with the education I was able to receive. So it was it was an amazing ride. But I definitely definitely understood that in order to realize my dream, it would uh, more than likely have to happen outside of Brooklyn. Yeah, no, that's a pretty good grad school education. There. <laughs> um, I, when uh, when I had Kate Scott on this podcast not too long ago. Um, and she's the, uh, for those of you who uh, don't know, she's the Philadelphia 76ers voice. She had to, uh, she came in and replaced Mark Zumoff, who was a Sixers um, legend, had been there, my math may be wrong on this, but whatever, 30-something years or something to that effect. I mean, Philadelphia institution. And so, you know, the audience has to get used to that. Different voice, Kate Scott comes in, replaces uh, uh, someone who's been there a while. Uh you're replacing someone in Dave Benz, who, while has not been there in in Minnesota as long as Mark Zumoff, was there a decade, was very popular, and I'm curious, uh, Michael, like, do you do you think about who was there before you, or do you try to like at least sort of convince your mind not to think of who was there before you, not to think of stylistically how they did the broadcast, and you do your own thing. I just wonder how you. You will approach this one understanding that, yeah, it, it would be different than Kate, who is replacing someone who's been there, you know, 30-something years. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, I look back and, 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 and think about who came before me, in this case, Dave, with, um, number one, with great respect. Um, I, in, my, in my journey, I've had these kind of unique positions and, and, and route to getting um, uh, where I am right now. And uh, I don't know how many play-by-play guys uh, can say that they were a public address announcer for eight years, uh, as, yeah. bizarre, as bizarre <laughs> as that is. Um, but that was a part of uh, that was a part of my journey. And the Pacers 
brought me in to replace Red Porter. And Red Porter may not be a household name nationally, but he was a legend in Indianapolis um, and was the public address announcer since their ABA days. Now, I stepped in Paul George's rookie season, and uh, I, that that year escapes me right now. Um, I'm getting old. But, but Paul George's rookie year was my first year doing PA announcing for the Pacers. And again, Rev had been doing it since the late 60s. And so that was my first kind of education being some 20-something-year-old in terms of um, is, the, is the fan base going to accept me? Um, how do I handle this whole thing? Um, how do I handle criticism? How is this whole thing going to play out? How long is it going to take to win them over? And I tried, not to psych, I tried not to psych myself out. There were a lot of thoughts that entered your mind, but I tried not to psych myself out. And again, being me, gave me peace at the end of the day. If I was trying to be someone I not uh, I was not, then I think I would have uh, struggled, you know, mentally and in that role, maybe freezing on the spot, trying to be somebody else. And what's always given me, given me peace when I've stepped into new roles and new positions was being, you know, authentically Michael. Um, and so that, that, that's what I'll rely on here in this, in this new position. I have a great deal of respect for, um, all play-by-play guys and guys who have been been doing it for a long time, and um, I know how beloved uh, Dave was in in Minneapolis and and covering the Timberwolves during some during some rough years. And um, there's again a great deal of respect there. Um, and as I step in, um, I'm looking I'm looking forward. Again, lifelong dream for me. I'm excited about the opportunity. Uh, I care about the game. And I care about people, and um, and I can I can go to sleep at night knowing that I'm 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 putting my best out there and being authentically me and connecting with people, and and giving a little bit of my passion uh, and joy for the game of basketball, this sport, working with Jim Peterson uh, out there, leaving it all out there. So that that's that's basically my approach: being myself and just enjoying the ride. You know, I know a cover you being part of the Nets broadcast. You, you, you have to have sort of a fundamental base knowledge of the league to start with. And then you have seen the Timberwolves, you know. It, it's not like they haven't come through Brooklyn or that or you haven't gone to Minneapolis. That said, it's very different, obviously, knowing a team from afar and then being the voice of the team. So what are your preparations right now to, to get to know this group? How does one come into a new situation and really feel comfortable and confident day one that y- you got a good feel for what this group is? Oh, from a, you know, from a foundational standpoint, you're doing as much research as you can, you know, getting to know uh, as many people as you can in the meantime from afar until I can be up close and personal with everybody. And that's, you know, everybody on the, on the roster, the, you know, the coaching staff, down to the ball boy, if I, if I could possibly, you know, do so and dig something up. Uh, and then it just really comes from, being around everybody um you know when it comes to any skill uh, repetition is extremely important and and practice and all those things and just doing it time and time again and i think the same thing is true when it comes to getting to know somebody um i'm not going to know the ins and outs of you know rudy gobert uh in a week 
uh, but over the course of the season and being around him and practice and traveling on planes and same hotel and, you know, and, and things along those lines and watching his game and talking to him before and after games, you know, there's there, a relationship will develop. And so, um, so right now it's just basically foundational knowledge. And then, and then once I get, get around the guys to be around them on a day in and day out basis, um, you know, that, that relationship grows, that chemistry grows, that understanding of what makes these guys tick. Uh, because at the end of the day, Richard, you know, um, you know, we're storytellers. And so um, being able to get to know these guys to better tell their story as the liaison between the players and the fan base is extremely important. So right, so right now, it's just a lot of homework from afar until uh, very soon I'll be able to uh, get out there uh, permanently and be around them day in and day out. So October 4th is, uh, look this up here, is the T-Wolves' first preseason game. Um, I would imagine that there's, prior to that, obviously, there's, uh, you know, however many practice sessions. Do, is it your intention, I guess, to be in Minneapolis starting in September or starting mid-September where you're at as many practices as possible and then obviously you're at every preseason game that you can get to? Yeah, so um, so I'll I'll do a little work with the uh, NFL and CBS through uh, September, but my um, my time will end there just before the start of um, start of training camp and uh, September twenty sixth, if I'm not mistaken, twenty fifth or twenty sixth uh, when things get rolling. So uh, so yes, yeah, so I'll be out there then. That's the um, I'll fly in and out for a couple of things before then, um, uh, and will be out there permanently in late September and and be out there every day during training camp and seeing these guys gel because again I'm I'm excited about the um I'm excited about the group and they should absolutely have a chip on their shoulder after what happened last year. You know, I want to I'm just curious about this. I mean, hopefully uh, um you'll answer it. Uh you know, there's a thought that like whenever one of these jobs come up, like like you said there's only 30, you got to take it. At the same time, like the reality is, like taking a play-by-play job for a team that's going to win twenty games is very different than taking a uh, play-by-play job with a team that's got a shot at fifty and is, um, you know, and has a real like playoff potential. Would you have taken any play-by-play job in the NBA that came up, or was the fact that this one is a team that looks like you know it's got a real shot to be a player in the Western Conference makes it that much more interesting? You know, I, I have to you have to consider every opportunity and what makes it somewhat complicated is contracts in general. Some people have out clauses in their contract. If a golden opportunity comes, they could step away. Um, uh, others, you know, you have years on your contract. And so you may have one summer as a free agent and just seeing what the landscape, you know, looks like. And I, I, when those, <laughs> when, when the contract is up, I think you have to consider strongly consider everything. You have to think about what, you know, you know, uprooting your family, you know, will my family be okay in this, in this particular city? You know, what are we talking about from a financial standpoint? Um, but on a, on a, just on a basic level, if you want to do play by play and your dream is to do play by play in the NBA, every opportunity, every job has to be strongly considered. Sure. You can gamble on yourself. Um, but Every one of these opportunities has to be strongly considered. I'm not going to name cities to, 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 to say, oh, even this lowly city, I won't do that. But I, I think you have to consider, um, I think you have to consider everything. If this is, 
truly a lifelong dream. That doesn't mean that you're going to take every opportunity. Again, there are all types of factors as to why you would or would not take a job. The timing could be poor for uh, certain opportunities. Um, but uh, so you definitely take everything into, con- into consideration. If the Timberwolves were a 20 win team and were, you know, uh, were really bad, no hope, you know what I'm saying? I can't say, Richard, that I absolutely would turn it down. You know, I joined the Nets at a sideline reporter and they had just won 21 games and they were, they had the basically essentially a, a death penalty um, uh, there. And for me at that point in my life, it was still a no brainer. I had no idea Kyrie Irving was coming, no idea Kevin Durant was coming. Um, but as a sideline reporter and to get that opportunity, it was a, it was a no brainer for me. Um, but aside from, you know, wins and losses and all those things. It's the people that you're working with, the people that you're going to be around. Um, the opportunity to get to um, to get his reps as a as a play by play guy, as you mentioned. You know, Ian's ahead of me in New York. You know, Root goes ahead of me in New York, and they 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 um, again two amazing play by play announcers. So that leaves about 10, 10 or so games for me to work each year with with the Brooklyn Nets and. If I were to sign a long-term deal, let's say three or four years, we're talking 30 to 40 games over a three, you know, four-year period. Now, in the 10 that I was able to do last season, you know, one was a 28-point comeback at the Garden. Uh, one was a 51-point performance by Kevin Durant. Another was a 60-point performance by Kyrie Irving. You know, I, I felt very fortunate to be able to call those games. But um, but I, I equate my my love for play-by-play and I was talking about this with Ian recently um, to those who are really passionate about golf it's something that you can't really perfect but you go out every day trying to chase perfection um, to be on point with the great calls um, to be on top of the game and the pace and describe it and being a master of the language and you know, doing 10 games, you know, I would, I would do one, one week, and then it might be two weeks or a month until I get another one. And that itch, that itch is always there. And so to be able to do all 82, or it won't be 82 because of the national broadcast, but to be able to do all the games for the Minnesota Temples, to be able to be a part of this great community, which reminds me of my time growing up in Indiana, man, it was, um, the more I thought about it, the more people I spoke to, it was an absolute no-brainer. Let's talk about the T-Wolves, and then uh, i got a couple quick Nets ones, and I'll get you out of here. Um, Rudy Gobert trade, obviously, huge offseason trade. Uh, you, pat, you, you put him with Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Edwards, D'Angelo Russell. This is, uh, this is a really interesting group, and I think for you in your first year, calling these games like I said uh, or like you said I should say they have a chip on their shoulder I mean legitimately if things go well and they don't uh, they don't have injuries you definitely could be looking at a 50 win team I think they'd be a dangerous team in the playoffs I know that any job would excite you given that it's your first run as a as a full-time play-by-play guy but like this particular group I just think as a broadcaster I just think like they play up tempo interesting basketball the fan base seems to be re-energized. I think it's a re- not for, forgetting about everything else. I just think it's a really good play-by-play gig because of the the team that's on the floor right now. And I imagine you agree. Yeah, you know the the, the fan base is and and rightfully so. Um, 
should be excited about the product out there on the basketball court. And I, I, I mentioned Indiana all the time and, and growing up and, and my mom, you know, um, really, really helped <laughs> fuel my excitement for, uh, for sports in general. But, but growing up and watching Pacers, Knicks, and the Knicks were just, you know, the big market and it's Patrick Ewing and, uh, you know, Spike Lee on the sidelines. And then you have little old Indiana with skinny Reggie Miller firing threes. And it was a, it, it felt like a David versus Goliath situation, um, us against the rest of the world. And that really connected the community. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere and not talk about, you see the pace again, you see what Reggie just did. You see he had 25 point fourth quarter, you know, the following, do you see the eight points in nine seconds? I mean, it really, really, connected everybody in all walks of life in Indianapolis and the state at large. And there was this swag about Reggie, this, you know, obviously the trash talk, all that kind of thing. And um, we all got behind that. And when I, and one, one, the first year the Pacers made it to the Eastern Conference Finals, uh, didn't even make it to the finals. They lose in the conference finals. And the city still threw them a parade. If that happened today, you know, people would, you know, I mean, there would be memes about it. They laugh, and that—that's kind of that's kind of what they did when the Timberwolves uh, won in the playing situation, uh, punching their ticket to the playoffs, and Pat Beverly jumping on scores tables along with Ant, and you know, the whole the community's going crazy, and people kind of laughed at that, like, damn, I don't want to. I don't want to chip. Like, what are y'all doing? And it didn't matter to that fan base. It didn't matter to the fan base. You know, they've, they've, they've watched teams struggle for years and years and years. And then to be able to punch their ticket to the playoffs the way that they did, um, you know, they celebrated in a way that, you know what, that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And they, de they deserve that. And you, got, you have the Lakers out there. You have the Clippers out there. You have the Golden State Warriors out there. Uh, you have Phoenix, obviously. Memphis is a young, hungry, aggressive team that I can put in the same light. They, of course, beat Minnesota in the postseason in that first round. Um, it's that same kind of us against everybody else mentality with, with Minnesota. You know, Carl Anthony Towns, terrific player. Rudy Gobert, you know, terrific player, terrific defender. Anthony Edwards, 21 years old, still a lot to prove, has some of that swagger that I just mentioned that Reggie Miller has. D'Angelo Russell has had his back against the wall as a player, you know, proven himself, extremely talented, a former, you know, all-star and still has a lot of potential and, 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 and such a, a great amount of room to grow. Um, I'm feeling these same vibes that I felt back in the 90s watching that um, small-town Indiana team um, turn heads. And even, if you, and even if you don't win a championship, even if it doesn't end in a championship, I think we all reflect back and enjoy the ride. I, 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 I talk to Knicks fans all the time and, and, you know, it sucked, you know, the Charles Smith play, the, the losing to Jordan multiple years, but you know what? I think that they, they look back on that time and smile and go, you know what? We didn't win a chip. And I, I, I hate that we didn't win a championship, but man, I had some great memories with my family. I had great memories at the bar. I had great memories at the arena watching those teams play and put it all on the line. 
And I don't know how it's going to end with Minnesota, but um, I know it's going to be one hell of a fun ride watching this team grow, mature, and battle with greats in the Western Conference and the league, league overall. Yeah, two things there. One, I love Derek McKee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when he was with the the Pacers. And then, uh, and obviously the Davis, uh, the Davis brothers. <laughs> but uh, the 1998 NBA Eastern Conference Final, that's got to, in Chicago, yeah. that's got to kill Pacer fans because that game was oh. winnable against Jordan. They, oh. they lost that game, I think, by five. But if I remember right, like that game is tied with like under six to go. And um, and if things go a little bit differently, oh. um, it's a whole new ball game. I, mean, like, I remember Reggie missing a three, like with around two minutes left. That might have either tied it or with one. You know, yeah. but I'm sure as a Pacer fan, you remember that yeah. game because that, uh, you know, everybody remembers the '98 Bulls. Um, yeah, undoubtedly so, great team. Blah blah blah. They were on the ropes against the Pacers. Like that yeah. series was a was a total coin flip. The Pacers gave them all they could handle, and there was a sequence. I can't. There was a jump ball, and Rick Smith's the seven foot four Duncan Dutch Dutchman, what we called him, uh, was tied up at a jump ball. I don't remember if it was Ron Harper. It was somebody that he had a distinct size advantage over, and it was a crucial moment in the game. Uh, the momentum would have swung in Indiana's favor, and Rick Smith's seven foot four. I love him. I love him. Um, but I uh, did not get to win that jump ball and uh, both scored and then went on to win that game. Um, Scotty Pippen played amazing defense on Mark Jackson in that game seven um, and stifled him and followed him up and down the court. Uh, it was brutal. It was, uh, <laughs> that was brutal. Um, but again, as I mentioned about the journey, uh, game, game four, game three, game four, Reggie Miller hitting the shot. You know, and on on a bad ankle, and then jumping up and twirling under the basket. I mean, that's a memory that I'll I'll always I'll always hang on hang on to. So there was certainly magic with those Pacers teams, even though they fell short. Um, but losing to a guy like Mike, you know, there's a lot of players out there who go, ah, just couldn't get just couldn't get past it. <laughs> it's Mike. I was watching Game Six of the uh, of '98 uh, Finals. Um, not long ago. And um, there were plays where the Jazz, you know, had it too. And um, just couldn't get That's it. Right. Just couldn't get it done. The, uh, I mean, I think what seems very clear, Michael, is that once you left the Nets for Minnesota, Kevin Durant decided, okay, I'm going to come back now. Things are clear. I can I can return to this uh, franchise. No, I'm kidding. But uh, but I do want to uh, I do want to ask you about that because um, the Nets become incredibly interesting with Durant returning. Ben Simmons, knock on wood, should play. Obviously, Kyrie's back. Um, I know it's your it's now your your old team, but like they're really really interesting, right? Yeah. And it it feels like to me living in a NBA city as I do in Toronto. Like, if you told me the Nets would win the championship or not make the playoffs, like, neither would surprise me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's, like, no there's no scenario where I would be surprised given the team this year. Yeah, you know, I think the thing that stands out for me is um, what does all-in look like? What does all, you know, I'm all-in look like for this group? Um Kevin Durant has played at an unbelievable level for whatever reason that hasn't been made public. 
He was disgruntled and frustrated and wanted out. And I, I think with everybody noticing how difficult it is to trade one of the top three players in the NBA right now, um, he, he had a change of heart. And since we don't know what caused the rift or him requesting an exit in the first place, how do we know that something won't get triggered over the course of the season if guys, if key players are going through an injury and Kevin is left on his own to kind of carry the, carry the ship? Uh, or uh, if, who's to say that if they experience trials and tribulations over the course of the 82-game schedule, that it won't enter his mind again and, um, and, and he wants out once again. So I, I think from the Nets' view, again, Josiah was in that conversation, Clara, uh, Sean Marks, Steve Nash. So they know the truth. And I, I think they feel comfortable with things moving forward. But you always, because we don't know the details of why he wanted out, you just wonder, is this whole thing sustainable over the course of a long 82-game season? Same thing with Kyrie Irving. There obviously was some hesitation on a long-term deal. He opts into his one-year deal. Is it? Are we eventually going to see him sign long-term with the Nets, or will he be a free agent and bounce, bounce in the summer? Um, that's going to be hanging over everybody's head as well. And then with Ben Simmons, it's just is—is is he out of his own head, and is his back good? Can it take the punishment of a full season? And and so those are the questions that really come to mind in terms of being. Um, all in. There's a mental component that you obviously want to respect with Ben Simmons as well. But so there's uncertainty there. So that's the that's the negative stuff. Get that out the way. And that's what every Nets fan is pondering and thinking about right now, even though there's excitement about Kevin Durant returning. That's the negative stuff. <clears throat> On the flip side, this should be a team that should annihilate everybody, just about everybody in the association. Kevin Durant, for all the, you know, the, the, the talk about where his head is at or whatnot, loves the game, gives every bit of himself out there on the basketball court. Where it was James Harden getting frustrated about carrying the team last season, it was Kevin Durant going out there, dropping a 50-piece here, 45 there, playing out there with rookies, <clears throat> given all that he had, even while de- dealing with, you know, bumps, bruises, and everything that comes with, um, you know, the war of attrition in the long NBA season. Uh, Kyrie Irving is still one of, the, one of the great magicians of this game. When he's locked in, and especially when he has other guys out the court to take attention away from him, there's just nothing you can do with Kyrie Irving. And Ben Simmons is excited about the opportunity to be a facilitator out there and do a number of different things to help this basketball team win. Oh, he doesn't, oh, well, he doesn't have a jump shot. Well, he doesn't need a jump shot. He's got Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, uh, Joe Harris is back. Seth Curry is on this roster. He can literally go out there and facilitate and attack the rim when he needs to and play tremendous defense and take pressure off of other guys out there on the roster. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's really, really fascinating. The big question is just chemistry. Can they gel? But from a talent standpoint, just looking up and down the roster, I mean – uh, wow, All right. they're going to be an absolute problem, and and I, I feel great for Nets Nets fans. You know, we have to you know consider the reality of just the uncertainty of how this this whole thing is going to mesh and click. I mean, again, Kevin said, I it, reportedly was saying that I don't really trust 
Sean Marks or Steve Nash. And uh, it's either them or me. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, there's a, a change of parts. So those things are still floating out there and we're all aware of it. But I'm happy that Nets fans get another opportunity to see a championship team if they can put it together. And then the last one for me, my um, my colleague at The Athletic, uh, John Krasinski. I always bangle his last name. I hope <laughs> I got that right. He wrote a, uh, he wrote a piece on you coming to... Um, to Minnesota, he's um, he covers the T Wolves and the Vikings for the Athletic, and within that piece, um, I read that uh, your mom Mavis had passed after a five year battle with cancer, uh, and I'm I was really sorry to read that. My mom passed in 2020 after a, a short battle with cancer, but uh, it seemed that um, she was a great champion of yours. I know I think you took this job after she had passed, but. Um, you gotta, if nothing else, you, you gotta think that um, your mom would just be overjoyed at uh, at you finally landing um, one of these, you know, truly dream jobs that people in in your business uh, work their entire careers many times and, and don't get. But in your case, uh, you've landed one of these thirty yeah. premium premium jobs in the country. I, I bet somewhere she's uh, she's thinking about you and proud of that. that um. That gives me um, uh, peace during a very difficult, you know, during a difficult time. And I think um, when I think about her, she was passionate about her kids. You know, it was myself and my my sister, Nicole. Um, she was passionate about sports. Um, and she was... A, she her work ethic um, was one that was um, really remarkable. Uh, single parent household. She worked a lot. Um, my sister and I spent a lot of time with our grandparents. Then we got a little bit older, spent you know time at home. Uh, my mom worked so many doubles. I just you know I thought that was just a, I thought that was normal. I thought working a double was normal. Um, because she worked so many of them to put food on the table and then, then eventually build a home for my my sister and I. And um, I have so many great memories of watching games with her and celebrating with her. And as I developed an interest in broadcasting, because I was a you know a radio guy growing up, I my mom would take drive me to the bus stop and we'd sit in the car and listen to the radio. And I, I just really, I really love the art form. And then watching games with her and listening to the announcers. And um, it just really clicked with me and planted a seed in my mind. And as my voice started to change my junior year of high school, and we had a radio station there at the high school that students could be a part of, you know, it was, it was a, a no-brainer for me to step in. And, and she really encouraged me along those lines. And um, she was my biggest cheerleader. And so she taught me so much. Um, and I learned so much just by example on um, loving hard, nurturing gifts, um, being almost embarrassing in your, in, in your um, uh, admiration for those you truly care about. <laughs> and um, uh, I was able to spend these last couple of months with her and, and the, the last stages of our battle you know we all must uh, we're all over my sister's house um and all under the same roof for the first time since high school 
And a lot of, we, we were able to create a lot of new great memories, laughed a lot, listened to music, shared stories. And um, we were right beside it to the very end, but her competitive energy, um, I, I told the story at the funeral. Uh, we, I was a, probably in middle school and we, she challenged me to a game of horse. She'd never seen me play basketball. I'd never seen her play basketball. And as a parent, you know, you want to give your kids some hope, give them a little bit of confidence, make them feel good. You know, we talk about this world where everybody gets a medal or whatnot. Um, but she whooped my ass on the basketball court that day. And um, there was <laughs> there's this competitive energy inside of her that just wouldn't allow her to let up, even on her uh, <laughs> on her young son. And that spirit was there right. Very difficult. Um, I'm very thankful, even though it felt cruel in a way that I was able to spend two months with her, able to say goodbye, able to look her in the eye and tell her how much I love her. Um, um, but it was sad because I would go to bed at night going, I don't know how many more of these I have. And I wish that there was something I could do, do to reverse this. And it was a really helpless, um, helpless feeling. But overall, I feel thankful that I was able to spend that time um, share what she meant to me and how thankful I am for all that she's done for me and, and sacrificing so much for my sister and I. And um, again, I'll, I'll end it where I started. I know that given how proud she was while she was living, um, knowing how proud she is um, and having makes me very, gives, gives me peace again in a very tough, tough uh, situation. I appreciate uh, uh, you sharing that with my audience. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Michael Grady was announced this month as the new voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves on Bally Sports North. He uh, spent the last six years with the Yes Network, uh, with Iad Eagle and Richard Jefferson, Sarah Kustak, Ryan Rucco on uh, on that excellent broadcast. So, um, you know, for those of you who are in Minnesota, obviously you'll be listening to him. If you have the NBA package, as many of I know uh, the listeners to this podcast do, you'll be hearing his voice uh, as you're floating through uh, different games uh, on a given night. Michael, man, sincere congratulations. Uh, these, uh, you know, as someone who's been writing this for a long time, like the, these are very, very plum jobs. And uh, when you land one, it, it's, a, it's a real landmark moment for someone's career. So congrats on that. Best of luck, and uh, and thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Richard, I, I've, I've admired you from afar, man. It's a joy to be on, and, and thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. All right, as I said at the top, last March, Anish Sharath was named the radio play-by-play announcer for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, I, you probably know who he is because you know, if you've turned on ESPN, particularly when it comes to college athletics, you've probably heard him call games. He's done various sports for that company, college football, college basketball, college baseball. Um, I think over the last five years, I'd probably fair to call him the, uh, the lead voice for men's college lacrosse for that, um, uh, for ESPN. And obviously, uh, lacrosse is a sport that uh, incrementally has grown year after year. And a particularly favorite of uh, Burke Magnus, who's a high-profile executive at ESPN. It's always good if uh, one of the top executives is a big fan of lacrosse. That's just the realities of uh, of ESPN. And with that, I bring in Anish Sharaf. Welcome. 
to the Sports Media Podcast, Anish. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for having me, and and you got my name right, and and you threw a little you threw a little lacrosse love. I don't know if you've talked about lacrosse on your podcast before, but here we are. Couple times, not much, uh, okay, but we'll, a little we'll bit. Yeah. We'll take it. I, I'm I'm very familiar with the uh, you know Long Island, like Baltimore, Maryland, uh, like. Uh, you know, strangleholds on lacrosse. And now that I live in Canada, it's the national course, sport. It is correct. It is not <laughs> hockey, technically. It is the national sport of Canada. It's, a, it's really an interesting sport. I will say this I, this is like, a, I'm dating myself here, but when I was at Sports Illustrated, Anish, I did a, a profile on um, Jen Adams. Does oh, that yeah. name bring a bell to you? She was a, a great yeah. Maryland lacrosse player. It was like one of the first stories I ever did at, uh, at SI. I mean, she was like essentially like the Jordan of women's college across and i got to have a lacrosse catch with her in front of her like apartment which is a great highlight for me because i could say like i had a lacrosse catch with one of the greatest women's lacrosse players of all now were you able to maneuver the stick and and actually play catch yeah as a new yorker it was i was i was a regular gary gate yeah i mean i was uh, yeah no i mean i was i was able to do it to the point where the times i had to run after the ball were not super embarrassing it was you know it wasn't bad, but no, like I mean, if she wanted to do some crazy and cool tricks, it it would have been a, uh, it would have been ugly. Yeah, it was in my younger, more agile days, so this was this was better for me. Yeah, today, uh, today it would be an ugly scene. I I destroy that film. Let's start here because I think this is um, this is always of great interest to uh, my listeners in terms of like how things get done, like h- how one gets to a certain job. So you have. Um, you have standing at ESPN in terms of you're a known entity. You've done uh, major college football. Theoretically, like professional sports organizations would know who you are. You don't necessarily have to, I think, submit a resume reel or anything like that. At the same time, an NFL job is a big deal um, in the broadcasting world. So, um, and I do know you live in Charlotte. So how did it come about that uh, that you and the Panthers uh, eventually came together? Yeah, so it was a long process. It basically started almost um, a year ago. I mean, we're, this is what, August 2022. It started actually July of last year. Mick Mixon, who was my predecessor, announced he was retiring. Yep. And having lived in Charlotte for a decade, my daughter's a Panthers fan. I adopted them as my de facto local team. I have friends who are Panthers fans. It was, hey, this is a really awesome opportunity in my own backyard. This is forever home for us, Charlotte. I've, I've said that many times. My dad moved here two years ago. My brother moved here right around the same time. My brother's in-laws are here. So we have the entire family. So this is home. And I just felt this was an opportunity, if it worked out, to not just put down roots, but you know, the Panthers give you a platform where you can really get in touch with your community. You can be actionable. Um, you can impact your community in, in, in other ways. And you have the biggest platform, in my opinion, in the Carolinas. So uh, right around that time last summer, I was really interested. And it was also around that time, a little bit before, about May 2021, uh, I get a random text from Steve Levy. And he says, hey, there is a, uh, a Denver Broncos preseason game, their second preseason game against Seattle. I'm not going to be able to do it. We got a Monday night football game somewhere else and I had two games in three days. So he was doing ESPN stuff and he does the Broncos preseason. Um, they're looking for names to potentially fill in. Uh, you interested? I said, yeah. So he passed my name off to the Denver people. Um, 
they reached out to me. I sent them some material. They liked what I sent them. And they said, hey, we'd love to have you fill in for Steve for this Denver-Seattle preseason game out in Seattle. So that was my first taste of NFL. And I kind of got the taste. And I said, all right, this is, this is something that I really like. Um, this would be cool. And then shortly after, Mick announced he was retiring. And I kind of had that bug. And basically, based on that, I uh, actually didn't have an agent at the time. <laughs> and um, started working with a uh, an agent at uh, CAA, uh, Kristen Bredis, uh, La Famille, uh, I'm going to butcher her last name, just call her Kristen Bredis, um, call her KB, and she's awesome. And so she had some ins there with the Panthers, and her and I were talking about the best way to approach this. And so uh, we had sent them my resume and sent them a, you know, a demo from some college football radio that I had done, and then it just – got the ball rolling. My first interview with them was last September. So when I tell you it was a long process, it was a long process. That went pretty well. And I kind of felt after that interview, all right, I think I got a, I think I got a real chance at this. So it's interesting. Uh, Michael Grady is also on this podcast because uh, you guys are going through sort of uh, at least similar journeys in different sports. And he told me that he interviewed with multiple ownership for the Timberwolves, including Alex Rodriguez. And you have multiple higher-ups, like the COO and stuff. So for your – because, you know, this is a – it's not just a broadcaster role. You're, you're really like a community representative of the Panthers. So, like, would would David Tepper have sat you down and interviewed you? Do you get interviewed by uh, – I wish I knew who it was, but, like, the highest business uh, position at the Panthers? Like, how did that interview process work? Yeah, so the first round – after they had a search firm essentially start the interview process. Once you got through that, the first real interview that I had last September, it was with Bill Voth, who was the director of broadcasting, right. uh, Bruce Spate, who's you know kind of their head of public relations, uh, and then David Langton, who is my producer, my direct report, and he produces the football games. He runs the entire radio department. So once I got through that, the final round, the final interview, it was, uh, wasn't David Tepper. It was Nicole Tepper, his wife. We yeah. had... Um, uh, you know, Jake Burns, who was our chief financial officer. And then we had at the time the team president, um, Tom Glick. So that was kind of the brain trust. And then Mick Mixon was in the room as well. Uh, Mick being the outgoing play by play. Do you think when they're when you're sort of going through the interview process? Uh, and again, this is very interesting to me because I, I don't I, I will never in my career go through like uh, interviewing with a professional sports team. How much are they looking to like get a sense of your knowledge of the team or organization, they already have heard your sound versus I'll just sort of be blunt and apologize for the cursing in the Manson niche. Like how I'm much from do New they Jersey. Want, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So how much do they, how, honestly, like just how much do they want to make sure that you're just not an asshole and like they can work with you and that you're just, you'd be a good person to be part of their organization. Cause that, you know, I feel like at a certain point, like, like that you, you know, you're working for the, the, the most famous sports brand in America, like your, your bona fides exist as a broadcaster. So what, like, what do you think they were looking for when you're doing that interview process? You know, they made it very clear. You know, this was more than just calling games on Sunday. This was being, as you said, a community representative, being the outward voice, face, whatever you want to call it, who presents the community, uh, presents the Panthers to the rest of the, the Carolinas and, and the rest of the greater Charlotte areas. So that component was important. You need somebody... Uh, you know, who can call games. You want somebody who can shake hands and kiss babies too. And, um, you know, placate the sponsors and the season ticket holders. So that component was a big part of it. Um, 
that was, you know, an area where, you know, honestly, weirdly that, that appealed to me. I wanted to be more visible in this community that I was going to call home forever. And I, you know, I'd kind of stressed that. And I said, Hey, there's, it's not just lip service. Like I, I live in Charlotte and, and you're telling me with this platform, we can do things for our community. We can do positive things for our community. And I have a chance to be a part of that. That believe it or not, was a big appeal to me. This was a job, you know, everybody's weird in terms of their own story. But for me, this was a job where if it was open in, in Cleveland or Cincinnati or, or Dallas or San Francisco, it would not have any appeal to me. I would not have applied for it. I would not have gone for it. What a, appealed to me about this gig was the fact that it was home, the place that is now home for me. And so being a part of that fabric of the Carolinas, that really meant a lot to me. Yeah, that makes sense. And also in an interview, quite frankly, like when they're talking about things that are unique to the city, like you've been there, yeah. you know that you could, you can talk about the streets that exist in the town. That's a huge advantage. I think if they were interviewing um, other people. Okay. So then there's the ESPN side where they have to sign, I presume you're, you're, you you have a multi-year contract or, a, or you're under contract, let's sort of use it, say that, at ESPN. So they have to, um, they have to green like this. They have to be like, okay, Anish, we, we give you permission to do the Panthers and we'll, we'll make it work with your other responsibilities. Now, there is precedent here in terms of this NFL connection. Wes Durham calls the Falcons. Mm-hmm. Dave Pash calls the Cardinals. Bob Wischusen calls the Jets. If I'm missing somebody, my apologies to you if you're listening from ESPN. So if nothing else, like you to me have an easy case here or your agent has an easy case here to say, this is a great opportunity. I've been a, you know, I've been a, I've been a loyal uh, employee for a long time and we have multiple people already who are doing this without knowing the answer. I would think that ESPN was probably pretty good about making this work. Yeah, they were. In fact, they were quite supportive. It wasn't just, yeah, okay, you can go do it. They were actually saying, we hope you get it. We think this would be great for you. We think this would be good for us. And uh, some of those names you mentioned, I had a conversation last summer with Bob with shoes and, Hey, is this feasible still doing college football and then doing NFL on Sunday? And, you know, he kind of mentioned how his week works. And I said, okay, uh, Wes Durham was my consigliere through this whole process. I annoyed Wes, you know, for the better part of the year. I, I mean, like he, if Wes and I get together, I'm not allowed to have him pay for dinners. I mean, I, I, I owe Wes big time. Because, again, not only does he do the Falcons, he's in the division. You know, he knows a lot about the Panthers. He sees them twice a year. He was great friends with Mick Mixon. So I went to Wes a lot. Hey, wh- what do you know about this? What do you know about this? And how would this work? And how would this work? And, and how would I go to ESPN with this? And Wes was awesome. I, I bugged the shit out of Wes, I mean, for, for a solid year. And every time you pick up the phone, and, um, and he still does. So Wes is a good friend, and he was invaluable in this process. But I was very transparent. Um, you know, my history was when I was applying for a gig at ESPN, when there was mutual interest years ago, I was under contract at my news station at the time. And I just kind of felt, hey, there's two ways to do this. One, don't say anything and then break your contract and, and you kind of look like an ass or, you know, just just be a human being, be transparent. This is an opportunity that I have in front of me. And come to them and, and be authentic about it, and I and I did, and um, that almost went off the rails as well. But um, it ended up working out, and so this time I went straight to the talent office, and I, I just said, "I have this opportunity to interview for an NFL gig. Um, it's with the Carolina Panthers, and this was before my first interview back in September of last year. Uh, the interview had been lined up, and I just said, 
you guys good with this? And I did have that list. I did have that list of names and they said no, <laughs> right. but they, they said, yeah, they said, Hey, that's great. We're happy for you. We hope you get it. We're pulling for you. Um, and, and they have, honestly, they've been nothing but supportive. Now, how like logistically does it, will it work with college football assignments and the Panthers, uh, you know, presuming that you're not getting every Thursday game and you have Saturday games, how does it work between doing college football Saturday and the pros on Sunday? So they'll have my Panther schedule and they'll have that. And then they'll have their college football grid. And, you know, for example, uh, week two, we're playing on the road at the giants. So they'll say, okay, he's got to be at the Meadowlands by one o'clock on Sunday. Where's the game that is in his range of games that can allow him to get to that place. And, you know, essentially that's how it'll be piecemeal together. Uh, I've talked with, with Dave Pash and with Susan and, and Wes, and they say, you know, some weeks it, it works out a little bit better than others, but I knew what I was signing up for. So I'm, I'm kind of prepared for that. Do you, uh, when it comes to the, the actual breakdown of preparation, do you do something like, okay, Monday, Wednesday's college, uh, Thursday, Sunday's the pros. Do you do both every day? Like for you, how's that going to work? Yeah. So doing home team radio is different. So uh, if you ask me now, you know, any number on the Panthers and, and stories about guys, I kind of have yeah, them down you pat. Know. I made sure to go to training yeah. camp pretty much every day and you're around the team, you're embedded. So you're also presenting the narrative largely from the side of the team that you cover. So the prep is heavily weighted toward Carolina. Not that I'm not prepping Cleveland or Buffalo, the preseason opponent this week, but it's heavily weighted toward your audience. It's home team radio. Um, so the, the Panthers prep for the team that I'm covering, you know, uh, is a lot less than prepping a national college broadcast. So um, how I'm going to break that down. I mean, right now, Monday, we do a coaches show, so it'll probably be, you know, a, a little bit of both each day. I, I sort of have a formula now for how I prep football. It's the one time of the year where you can stay in a rhythm. You can have a process. Um, and I thrive off chaos. I will say that, but, but I do like having a little bit of a system and, and a routine in the fall. So it'll just be a new system and a new routine. And I'm still kind of piecemealing it together. Hopefully I have a uh, an answer by the time next week rolls around. When you uh, when someone replaces a well known voice in a market, it's never easy. Um, I've had you know multiple people on this podcast who've uh, had that. Joe Davis wasn't on too long ago. Obviously, I, I mean he didn't quote unquote replace Vince Scully, but he was a new broadcaster in the post Vince Scully era. Uh, Kate Scott has been on this broadcast a couple of times, had to replace Mark Zumoff of the Sixers. You know, Michael Grady, obviously, obviously has to replace Dave Benz at uh, the Timberwolves. And so, like you mentioned earlier, you're replacing um, Mick Mixon. This is just my guess, Anish, but you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. My guess is it makes things a little, the transition becomes a little bit easier if the if the broadcaster is retiring. Like if that person has made the decision to leave and that person leaves on, in a very good note, as opposed to if a person is replaced and you're coming into uh, a new situation where you know management has made a decision to bring you in for somebody, particularly if that somebody was like a beloved figure in the community. So my guess is, and it's just a pure guess, like be because it, of how um, it went for Mick, because he seems really just supportive of what's coming next, that transition isn't so challenging or tough for you because uh, – um, he was retiring, and it was clear that he had made a decision that he was going to walk away? Spot on. Um, now Mick retiring meant I wasn't replacing him. I was succeeding him. 
And yeah, there you go. The way Mick has handled everything as well, um, and as good as he's been to me, that that that's been you know the best thing for me in this whole process. I started. And he was there my first day when I was being introduced and they did the whole rollout. And he basically told me, he said, Hey, anything you need, uh, anything I can help you with in this process, I'm here for you. Of all the things that he could offer, he offered up friendship. Um, and I just called him a few weeks ago when I was at training camp, just picking his brain about some preseason stuff and you know, got back to me right away. He's enjoying retirement. He's got his grandkids. He's got this farmhouse that he's doing up. And he said, you know, he's like, I, I don't want to be that shadow that hovers over you. Do your own thing. Be you. Um, find yourself. Find yourself in this new gig, uh, which I really appreciate. Uh, but at the same time, I know that, hey, if something does come up and I need his advice, I can go to him. And I mean, you've been doing enough of these podcasts. You've interviewed a lot of people in our industry. That sort of congeniality is not always there, especially when a torch is being passed. I, I have been to Charlotte once. Okay, I've been to. Uh, to it's very just to be blunt, brutally honest. Uh, I've, I I probably have been to Carolina maybe one other time. I feel like I was in the triangle uh, for some college basketball uh, assignment, but it's it's all blurring at the. At Greensboro, that's my other Carolina trip. There you go. So my knowledge of um, of North Carolina and its relationship to the Panthers is not very strong. And I used to make the joke as a longtime New Yorker that, like, you know, the SEC to me was always more of the Securities Exchange Commission than it was uh, the SEC football. You know, just sort of you got to own it. So, is from your experience, like, is um, is what's the expectation among Panthers fans? Like, is it a uh, would you call it a passionate? Um, fan base. They had a lot of success at one point, and then they've also had some lean years. So how, like, it feels very easy to figure out like what Bills Mafia is and what like the like uh you know Steelers fans are. But I, just is just my own uh, ignorance here. Like, wh- how would you describe the Panthers fan base? That's a great question. I would say evolving. It's still evolving. This is still a young franchise. They're not even thirty years old yet, and nobody's grandfather grew up a Panthers fan. And you have to understand that, yeah, right? Great point. So part of this job and part of the job description for all of us who work for the Panthers, you're doing missionary work. You know, Charlotte and the Carolinas more and more is becoming home to transplants. I'm looking down on my street. My next door neighbor's from Connecticut. The guy across the streets from Boston. You know, there's Bill's Mafia up the road. In fact, there's two of them. Now, the person <laughs> next door on the other side, they're from Florida. So you have all these people from different parts of the country who've come to Charlotte, who've come to the Carolinas. They all bring their allegiances. We have to either get them to adopt the Panthers or we got to get their kids. (laughs) And that's kind of part of this gig. And that's kind of part of the challenge where what I think the Panthers need more than anything that they haven't had is sustained success. If you look at the history of the franchise, they've never been to the playoffs in back-to-back seasons. So if you can string together four or five years where you're going to the playoffs every year. Um, if you get that quarterback who can you know, make you that contender, and, and we had a great one in camp, but if you can get that quarterback who's your answer for the long term, and now you're contending to some degree every year, maybe it's not for a Super Bowl, but the very least a, a playoff berth, you're in that mix going into every season. I think that galvanizes the fan base. So that's what we're looking for. So when I say evolving, you know, there's missionary work involved. There's a lot of people who come here who have their teams already. We got to make them Panther fans. The way you do that is, is you win year to year. It just can't be a one-off. And, and, you know, we have new ownership that's committed to doing that. 
but the history of the franchise, when you look at it, again, when you haven't been to the playoffs in back-to-back seasons, sometimes it's hard to forge those really strong fans. Not that we don't have them. We do, but we need more of them. The, you know, it would, it would, uh, you're going to call the games whoever's on the field, but it would strike me that in your position, like it's got to be more exciting that like Baker Mayfield is in Charlotte because some, um, like the reality is like people are interested in what he does beyond uh, Panthers country. Uh, I know Sam Darnold is down there as well, and I imagine there's probably some uh, Jet fans who are curious to see if like he can find it, but. Like the reality is, like you, you know, among the you know seven hundred stories that the NFL has every year, like this is one of the stories. Is like can Baker Mayfield, um, you know, sort of find a second career in uh, with the Panthers? And I would think just as the I don't know if you've talked to Baker, but if you've been training camp, you've obviously been around him, if nothing else. But does that you like the fact that in your first year um, at the most important position on the field? Like you have a story, you have a guy who's uh, compelling beyond your own fan base, at least to me. Yeah. And oh, by the way, we play Cleveland week one. You know, you're essentially saying, all right, let's pour gasoline on this fire right from the get go. And what's neat about Baker is he, he, he'll tell it like it is. And when you're in our industry and, and you're in our side in the media, you like the guy who's going to give you something to talk about and give you something to write about. And Baker is not afraid to, to shy away from the stuff. He knows that this was a big year for him. He knew that going into training camp, he was betting on himself and his future as a starting quarterback in this league. When you ask him about Cleveland, he says, I'm not a robot. I know who's on the schedule. He embraces it, whereas it would be very easy to give the stock answer, well, you know, it's just another game. I'm a Carolina Panther now, right? He understands it, and I think that makes it intriguing. I think – there is an element of a little tikka masala now sprinkled on this franchise where you can get excited and you have a quarterback who, again, two years ago was, you know, not only top 10 in QBR and took the Browns to the playoffs and won a playoff game, but he gives you a little swagger. You know, I don't want to call it arrogance, but he's got this boulder on his shoulder. Um, he, he, he plays with that zest. There's a different energy when he's in the huddle and this franchise hasn't had that uh, since the heyday of Cam Newton. Uh, I believe we've had uh, roughly 240 episodes of the sports media podcast after the uh, sports illustrated podcast. I did. That is absolutely the first mention of Tika Masala on this podcast. So thank you uh, for that. That's, that's appreciated. All right. A couple more here. I want to ask you about, um, you know, your other, uh, your other career away from the Panthers and that's at ESPN. You have become, um, the probably the most prominent play-by-play voice that they have when it comes to college lacrosse. And as I mentioned at the top, like that, you know, let's be realistic. It's not college football. It's not the NBA. It's not the NFL. That said, within the smaller college sports, that is a sport that having talked to ESPN executives, they do think has growth and they are invested and they do think that there is more audience to be had. So while, yes, I am sure that like it is not the same as like Chris Fowler calling the college football national championship, uh, you must like that at least you're, you're part of a sport that at least the executives at your place seem to believe that has some growth potential. I would agree. And what we've done in the last few years is reinforce that, uh, picking up the contract for the NLL, the indoor league, and now the PLL, which is the 
Premier Lacrosse League. It's the main pro league. Pro lacrosse hasn't quite taken off like the college game, but if we're going to grow this thing, you hope it would. Um, no, certainly it's, it's humbling that anybody would say, hey, you, you can be the, the steward of this sport and you can be the guy who calls championship weekend and, um, and national championships. And I've been doing that since, since 2017 on lacrosse. Um, what's, what's unique about it is what I really enjoy about it is the freedom that comes with calling that sport where in a lot of ways you can just create content for yourself. And I don't want that to come off as selfish in the sense that, you know, sometimes when we create content, we're always thinking, you know, what do people want? What do people want? How, how, how can we give them what they want without really knowing what they want? And when you consume television, for example, you know, if somebody would have said, Hey, Richard, I, I gotta, I gotta pitch for a show. Listen to me. It's a, it's this chemistry teacher who's dying of cancer but he's going to sell meth. You'd probably laugh him out of the room, but again, Gilligan and Gold said, hey, it's creating content for us. And when you do that, you put your heart into it and people come to it. And, and that's kind of what we've figured out with lacrosse. We've um, stumbled upon this, this three-man dynamic where I get to work with Quint Kesnick and Paul Carcaterra. I, I've been doing this long enough where you know what unique chemistry is in the booth. And in lacrosse, uh, we somehow have have figured that out. Myself, Quint Kesnick, Paul Carcaterra, we'll normally do the championship coverage, the the final four coverage, and it's become this it's become this thing. It's become this thing that you know people like to hear the organic moments, and we make fun of Quint taking bags of potato chips and turning them into a pocket square. And, um, you know, the, the idiosyncrasies that, that Kark may have and, and Ish can't swim and uh, sort of everything behind the curtain one day went in front of the curtain and it's made air and it's allowed us to sort of explore different parts of ourselves. And for all of us who cover different sports, I mean, Quentin Kark both do college football as well on the sideline. We've turned lacrosse in a lot of ways into this experimental canvas Hey, let's throw, let's throw paint at the wall and see if it sticks. All right, no, tear it down. Nobody's watching. It's fine. We'll try it again. Uh, and that's what I've really liked about it. We can experiment. We can try new things. We don't feel confined maybe by some of the things that we do feel confined with in other sports. Yeah, you have to try that, I think, when it comes to smaller sports or, or alternative presentations. So uh, that's smart of you guys. All right, uh, as we finish up here, I do want to ask you one thing about uh, college football. So I'm looking at, um, at the moment, I'm looking at the ESPN 2022 um, college football broadcaster, uh, like uh, announcer talent uh, uh, setup. Uh, bear with me. This may take 5,000 years, by the way, for me to read. There's so many people here. Uh, in all, but in all seriousness, you know, you, you are working this year with Brock Osweiler and Taylor McGregor. You're on the ESPN or ESPN2 Saturday game. Th this is a very, very good job. You look at the, um, the roster here, and, you know, you're, um, you know, you got, however you want to sort of phrase it, you have one of the top 10 games every week, if we're going to sort of put it that way. That said, um, there are so many people who are working in college football, and really there are a lot of play-by-play -play and analysts. I wonder from your perspective, like, you, you want to be appreciative of what you have. At the same time, 
like it's only natural for you to want to continue to sort of grow and do bigger games. But there's so many people that they have employed. So I just wonder, and again, you're not somebody who's near bike anywhere near the end of his career at all. You're still pretty young in the business. So how do you approach that? How do you approach that like sort of understanding, all right, I'm on ESPN and ESPN too. So I've landed a national job, but I look up in Fowler, McDonough, Tassator, Mark Jones, Pash, you know what I mean? There's still, there's a lot of teams that are quote unquote still above you. So I'm curious because I, uh, um, because I have a lot of respect for you uh, and your talent, but at the same time, I also know there's a lot of talented people who work at your place. So how do you, how do you, how do you sort of navigate that? That's a great question. For me, the biggest thing is I try not to tie my identity and self-worth to what I do for a living. Um, I did that in my twenties. I think a lot of people do that in their twenties. And then you get to a point where you find out there's other things in life that just mean more. Um, and not to sidetrack, I'll get back to your question, but for example, this Panthers gig, I'm not chasing that if it was in another city because I didn't want to uproot my family. My wife likes it here. My daughter likes it here. And so I've always just tried to look at it from my prism. And I was taught a harsh lesson at an early age that tomorrow isn't given to you. So when you have that perspective, you always say, what's, what's really important? Um, am I going to try to keep score at work or enjoy what I have? And I'm grateful and appreciative that I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a human being. I'm all these things before I am what I do for a living, fully understanding that the external world, because of how public my job is, may view me from the prism of this is what he does for a living but I try to not view myself that way. Um, so it's very easy to get caught up at ESPN, especially so-and-so is doing this. So-and-so is doing this. So how come I'm not doing this? And I'm not here. And I'm not going to say I haven't done it. We're all guilty of it. Like I, I've, I, I've been there, but um, I think as you age and as you mature and as you get older and you have other things in your life that you're tethered to, uh, I, I'm kind of at peace in a sense that I have what's important. And anything that comes success or promotions career-wise, you know, I, I got to not lose what I have. There, there's a cost, right, that comes with these things. And, you know, there are certain things that I'm not willing to lose. Like, I'm not willing to, you know, be an absentee father or to go chase a job cross-country and, and go back and forth and be out, you know, one day a week at home um, and be on the road six days a week. I just, I'm just not willing to do that. Uh, Ten years ago... Five years ago, six years ago, um, I thought, man, I would love to get into baseball and maybe I could be the announcer of a baseball team one day. I have no desire to do that anymore because I couldn't, I couldn't stand being away from my family that long. Couldn't stand being away from my daughter that long. And you know, people view that differently in this industry. Um, for some people, they'll say, "Oh, you know, like uh, he, he doesn't want it." Like, I, I'm like that's not true. Like, I, I want to, I want to <laughs> grow. I want to get better. I want to move up. I think everybody's like that. Um, but not at the cost of the things that are really important. And uh, I think just so the audience knows, w when you were referring to sort of the lesson that you learned young, uh, I, I believe that your mom passed away, right? When you were in, uh, you were pretty young, like a high school, like a high schooler, I think, correct? Yeah, I was a senior in high school. It was uh, three weeks, three weeks before my high school graduation. Wow. Um, I am, 
I'm really sorry to hear that. My mom passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, 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 feel very fortunate to have her as long as we did and really fortunate that in many ways she passed uh, prior to uh, a week before sort of the world shut down for COVID. So we were at least able to celebrate her life and uh, and to bury her. But uh, but um, I did. I, I, I knew I had read that, Anish. And so, uh, um, you know, the pain remains tough no matter how old you are. So my condolences. Uh, well, my condolences to you as well. And, and I think that, again, I just turned 40 last month. And so I look at it. My mom was 46 when she passed, wow. which is and, and it, it hits you now. Man, that was really young. Yeah, crazy right? young. I don't yeah, feel old. Crazy. And I'm yep. thinking she was 46. And so when you're working and you're pursuing these things, to me, there's always a why. And the why can't be about you. It's got to be, you know, this is a, <laughs> I guess, a, the Buddhist in me or whatever you want to call it. But the, the why has to be beyond beyond you, right? To find the self is to lose the self. Um, and so I've always kind of just, just taken that with me. Like, it's not that I don't want to do more. It's not that I don't want to move up. Um, but I have a really good why right here. And so if it would come at the cost of that, knowing what I know, having lived through what I lived through, that's just not worth it. Yeah, no, you have a really good perspective. Uh, a, uh, someone I worked with up here in Toronto for many years is a pretty famous broadcaster named Bob McCowan. Used to always preach, don't fuck with don't happy. Don't fuck with happy. No, you, you don't. You yeah. don't. Yeah. And you, 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 I think as you get older, I think hopefully if you, emotionally mature a little bit you understand the importance of that like the the chase is nice but um if you can sort of be self-aware of where you are and be happy with where you are um you kind of got it made more than you might even realize you know and, and that's the thing at the end of the day that that sort of keeps you tethered and it, and it keeps you grounded um yeah i can tell you this now you know, a few years ago there was an opportunity um that that, that came up and thought about it and realized, okay, my wife was pregnant at the time and we would have to uproot and we would have to move. And was it, was it worth it for a few more bucks? No, because what are you doing? You're, you're, you're rolling the dice on happy, right? And when you have yes, happy, exactly. um, especially when you've seen the other side of it, I, I've always said, you know, don't, don't take that for granted. <laughs> well said. Uh, Anish Sharaf is the, um, the new play by new radio play by play voice for the Carolina Panthers. So, if you obviously are within that region, you can listen to him. Um, the NFL actually has gotten to a point, particularly with SiriusXM and other places, where you can literally listen to any broadcast from anywhere, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and also, you will see him on uh, ESPN uh, doing various sports. As I mentioned uh, earlier, he's um, uh, he's one of the college football broadcasters this year. So you'll see him on either uh, ESPN or ESPN two or ESPN Plus, I guess, depending on uh, what his assignment is. Uh, Anish, man, thank you for uh, agreeing to do this very, very quickly. We turned this around uh, essentially from when I asked you within a, within a day. But um, but I think, you again, these are very, very premium jobs, and uh, and you have one. Actually, you have two. So congratulations uh, in that sense. And uh, and I wish you the best of luck with the Panthers and ESPN, and, uh, and uh, great to catch up with you, man. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. I appreciate you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Michael Grady and Anish Sharaf for two great uh, conversations. I really enjoyed both those guys. Uh, really smart, and, and I wish them the best of luck as they uh, start their journeys with the Timberwolves and the Panthers. You can uh, head to the archives for previous conversations. There should be uh, some stuff you like. We had a lot of at least uh, 
uh, for the tennis fans out there, given Serena Williams' uh, last major tournament ever. We got some uh, tennis conversations, including with the tennis podcast group, as well as uh, covering Serena Williams, a conversation with John Wertheim and Scott Price, my uh, former Sports Illustrated colleagues, had an emergency podcast with Stu Mandel on the Big Ten TV rights deal, Secrets of Writing for WWE and Professional Wrestling with Brian Gewertz, uh, Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America with Jason Reed, talked to a hostage uh, policy expert on Brittany Griner, Dr. Danny Gilbert, and uh, Joe Buck on Vince Scully. Head to the archives. There should be some stuff uh, that you like. Appreciate Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Appreciate everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And most of all, appreciate you guys for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.